And we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And Pastor Bill will be preaching God's word for us. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's grace, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen seating beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I give him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. We are continuing our study this morning in the book of Nehemiah. It's a study that we began a few weeks ago. It's a book that talks about what happened to the people of God at a point in their history when they were in a very weakened state. Walls of the city had been broken down. The gates were burned with fire. They were unable to guard themselves and create their own culture of the people of God. They were unable to effectively interact with the larger nations surrounding them. And as we've been studying this, we realize that their situation 2,500 years ago is not really all that different from our situation here as a Western church in a secular society. And so we're studying this book because we want to ask the question, we want to answer the question, what do we do as the church when the church is not strong in her society? What do we do as the church when we are in a society that does not particularly like the church? Or in the words of chapter 2, verse 10, that Luke just read for us, how do we live lives that seek the welfare of the people of God. That's not the right slides. Could you just, we'll just run without that today. How do we live lives that seek the welfare of the people of God? And how do we do that knowing that again in the words of chapter 2 verse 10 that it will displease others greatly? That's what drives Nehemiah. It's the desire to see the welfare seek the welfare of God's people. And he does that even when he knows that it's going to set him in opposition to the powers that be. It was that desire to seek their welfare that drove him to pray for months in chapter 1. It's that desire that we see in chapter 2 that drives him to risk his life for the sake of God's people. And you're going to see it driving him throughout the rest of the book. 
And you start to realize, okay, that, that should drive you as well. It should also drive me to seek the welfare of God's people. But what if it doesn't? What if you look at that and you say, you know, well, why should I? I I'm not opposed to God's people being better off, but what does that really have to do with me? What, why should I get involved? I already tithe. I already contribute a couple hours to, to the people around me. I, I know the people around me. Isn't that good enough? We're good at community here. Why should I seek the welfare of God's people? That sounds much bigger. It sounds like church capital C, like all of the church. Why should that be important to me? And I want to be transparent for a moment. I'm concerned because I understand where we live. We live in the West. We live in a highly individualized culture. And we can push back against that a little bit, but you can't live in the West without being affected by the radical individualism here, which makes us do what? It, it makes us feel less responsibility to the whole. And so I'm concerned that if I were to preach something very personal today and I were to say to you, uh, let, let, let's talk about marriage, let's talk about relationships, let's talk about dating, let's talk about parenting, something like that, Every, everybody would start to feel interested, right? That, that there's a certain feel, uh, felt need aspect to that. But when I talk about something larger, the church, the people of God, my fear is that that's just not going to be as interesting. And so if I were to say something at that personal level, that individual level, and say, you need to be invested in your family, my fear is that everybody would nod and, and take out their pens and, and start taking notes. But if I say you need to be invested in God's family, that just doesn't feel nearly as compelling. And so I could spend time this morning unpacking with you how Nehemiah cares deeply for the welfare of God's people, these people that are a thousand miles away from where he is. I can unpack with you how he does that. But if we actually don't feel that as our own personal need, what's going to happen? About half of us are going to walk out of here saying, well, that was a nice Bible lesson. doesn't really apply to me. And the other half of us are going to feel guilty and feel duty and responsibility and all of those kinds of things because, man, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. So how do we get to be where we need to be this morning? Well, obviously, we can pray that God would give us the same kind of heart that Nehemiah had. And we spent time in chapter 1 seeing that, yeah, there's actually, that's valid that the more that we pursue the Lord, the more that he'll give us his heart. That's part of what we're going to do at 1230. Again, just really invite as many people as can to come and join us so that we do learn to have that heart. But maybe it'd be helpful not just to see that we should care about the church as a whole. Maybe we should unpack reasons for why we should care about the church. Why is it that we need to have a strong church? And again, I'm not talking at a local level only. I'm also talking about that larger, all of God's people level. Why should we invest ourselves in her so that she becomes strong? And let me give you three quick reasons, and then we'll go into Nehemiah a little bit more. Number one, it's just in the nature of healthy individuals that they care about community. That's what healthy individuals do. Healthy individuals have a sense of themselves as an individual, but they recognize that they are within this larger web of relationships. And they're not just enjoying those relationships, but they feel a responsibility to other people in those relationships. And so you think here about Jesus. Jesus, before he comes to earth, is where he's with the Trinity. They are interacting, relating back and forth, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they're doing so in such a way that there are no needs in the Trinity. There is no sense of we're missing something, we need something else to make us feel better. 
Instead, what, they're perfectly satisfied, perfectly complete in heaven. And yet, they put the goodness on hold that they're enjoying. Why? Because they look and they see God's people. And they see the church. And they see how weak she is. And they see how weak she is going all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so they put their happiness, their temporal happiness on hold, if you want to say it that way. I'm pushing the boundaries a little bit. But they put their temporal happiness on hold altogether in heaven for the sake of offering us eternal happiness. That's what a healthy individual does. They're motivated by more than just their own lives and what benefits them. They're motivated by what benefits the whole. Or secondly, think about it from a different direction. Think about the reasons why we tend not to care as much about the church as we should. And you can point to a couple different things. You can point to the privatization of religion, this idea that what really matters in my relationship with God is Jesus and me. And as long as Jesus and me are okay, I, I don't really have to care about the broader church. It really doesn't make much of a difference. Privatization of religion. Or you can point to the commercialization of the church and, and the consumerist way that we approach church, how we shop around for a church that, that meets my tastes, that, that looks for one that I think is interesting, that, that I think is fun, that, that offers the programs that I want that as a pastor that I think, okay, he really gets me, that, that, that sings the songs that I like, and they sing the songs that I like in the way that I like them. And that sense that if I start to become a little discontent with my church, what do I do? I, I pack up and I look around for another one. Those two things, privatization, consumerism, where do those things come from? Where do those values come from? They do not come from your study of the scripture. You won't find if you and Jesus are okay, then you're good in the scripture. You won't find that by studying the Trinity. Where do those things come from? They come from what we call secularization. It's that attitude in the West that says religion is what? It's a private affair and has no right to belong in the public sphere. And so you have this sense then of religion that, that, that it's just you, it's individual, and as long as you and God are okay, you're okay. In other words, when you see that in you, that's not something to affirm. That's something that you get upset about. You say, this does not come because I saw how the Trinity interacts with each other, and that's my model, and therefore that's what I want. You're, you're saying, no, I'm actually being pushed and pulled by my society, and I'm more informed by that than I am by the word of God. So why should we seek the welfare of the church? That, number one, that's just what healthy individuals do. Number two, the desire not to seek the welfare of God's people comes more from the secularizing society. Number three, it, 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 it's a little bit like recognizing that, that people from a dysfunctional family don't know what's actually good and healthy for them. This approach to life that we're talking about, this high individualism, creates stunted individuals, people who are absorbed with their own concerns, but they don't know that that's actually a broken way to live. It's a little bit like if you're talking to someone from a dysfunctional family and you're asking them, why do you need to be part of a healthy family? And you realize they can't answer that question because they're not aware of what a healthy family is. They don't have a sense of how, what good dynamics are and how that should inform you and affect you and train you in order to interact with others. They have no idea that what they have now is unhealthy and they don't know what they should be looking for. It's only when someone comes in contact with healthy people 
who treat them differently, that they start to understand, man, my family was really messed up, and I fit right in. Which means what? Which means I'm really messed up. I don't know how to have healthy relationships. I don't know how to be a healthy individual. I don't know how to see the world accurately. I don't know how to engage other people well. And the worst part is I don't know what I don't know. And so I just keep blundering into things, blowing things up, and I don't understand, I don't get it. Your family forms your identity, gives you ways to understand, here's who you are as an individual, here's your place in the larger world. In the same exact way, the church does that for you as well. How do you learn what it is to grow up into the image of God that God made you to be? You learn that from scripture, you learn that from the Holy Spirit, you learn that from the church. It's as you are with God's people, where God's values, his commands, his uh, concerns, his heart live among the people of God that you actually are raised up and you become that healthy kind of an individual. And so you can only be a healthy individual when the church is healthy. So you step back from those three things and you think to yourself, wow, if the condition of the larger community does not impact me in any way, if I could take it or leave it, what does that say about me? It says that I'm not a healthy individual. It says that I'm broken inside. I don't understand what I really need to understand. You start to realize I need to have a strong church. I need to have a healthy church if I'm gonna be a healthy individual. I need to have a healthy church if I'm gonna have healthy relationships. If my family's gonna be healthy, if my one-on-one -on -one relationships are gonna be healthy, if my roommates, if, if my CG is gonna be healthy, I have to be in a healthy church. And again, not just at the local level, I have to be in a healthy church across the board. You realize you can't reach the larger world well without the church being healthy. It's very important that we as the people of God seek the welfare of God's people. It's not given to just a few people like the Nehemiahs of the world. That's given to all of us, that we would be those people who seek that. So with that as introduction, and I'm gonna be brief this morning, but with that as introduction, how do you do that? How do you actually seek the health, the welfare of God's people? Three things that we see in Nehemiah. Number one, if you want to seek the welfare of the church, you have to look for the opportunities that God gives. You have to be aware that God is doing something in the world, and what he is doing is what I want to be doing. Therefore, I'm looking for those opportunities. Number two, if you want to seek the welfare of the church, you have to get ready in advance for those opportunities. You can't just blunder into them and think that you're prepared. You actually have to get yourself ready. And number three, if you want to seek the welfare of the church, you have to take those opportunities with both hands. You have to be bold when you see them. So one, you have to look for opportunities. Two, you have to be ready for them when they happen. Three, you have to seize them boldly when they do happen. First, if you want to seek the welfare of the church, you have to look for the opportunities to do so. Now back in Nehemiah chapter one, we learned that Nehemiah started praying in the month of Kislev when he first heard the news about Jerusalem. Chapter two, it's now the month of Nisan. That's four months later. He's been praying for four months that God would give him success with the king. Four months, and it's only now that he's finally bringing the topic up with the king. What does that tell you? It tells you that he's not had an opening before. 
He's obviously been thinking about what he wants to do. He's got this whole thing planned out in his head. He's able to have a conversation about it. It's been on his heart. He hasn't had an opportunity to say anything until now. And if we're really honest, this opening that he has with the king, it's so small, it hardly looks like an opportunity. Verse 2, king asks, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And if Nehemiah is not looking for this opportunity, that just goes right past you. You don't even think of that as an opportunity. Or Nehemiah, if he had thought, you know, I'm looking for an opportunity, trying to find a way to get this conversation moving. If he's thinking that way, what the king just gave him isn't a whole lot. And you can imagine someone saying, man, I, I, I need more than that. I, I'll just keep waiting and I'll keep praying. It would have been so easy to duck the king's question. Nehemiah could have just shrugged it off, could have blamed it on the weather. Okay, it's winter time in Susa. You know, that's just sort of seasonal affective disorder, I'm not feeling so good. Or he could have said, you know, there's that political intrigue going on out there and, and that's sort of preoccupying my mind right now. There were so many ways not to say something. So many ways to lose the moment. But Nehemiah has been praying for success with the king, for mercy with the king, and he sees this moment and he takes it. He prays one more time, verse 4, and then he jumps in. If you want to seek the welfare of the church, you have to be looking for those opportunities. You have to be aware God's doing something in this earth and whatever he's doing, I want to tag into, I want to be part of that. You have to look for the opportunities and not let them go by. Secondly, if you're going to seek the welfare of the church, you have to be ready for those opportunities. If you're not ready for them, prepared for them, you can't take advantage of them. See, opportunities are great, but if you haven't thought about what to do with them in advance, with what you actually want out of them, then what? They just, they, they just dissipate. You waste them when they take place. Nehemiah knew what he wanted. He wanted, verse 5, to rebuild Jerusalem. He also knew what he needed in order to make that happen. He knew, verse 6, how long it was going to take him to do this, how long he'd be away. He knew, verse 7, the kind of cooperation that he needed from other government officials. Verse 8, he knew the kind of materials, the resources that he was going to need, and he knew where to get those materials. What does that tell you? He did not come up with all of that on the fly. He's been praying for four months, but he's also been doing something else. He's obviously been planning. He took seriously that if he was going to ask chapter one for success, if he was going to ask for mercy with the king, then he needed to do some work. He needed to plan out what was he going to do when God answered that prayer, when God actually gave him that mercy. So when the opportunity came along, he was ready. Now, what's this look like more for us in the present age? Let me give you two examples. First one's small. When Sally, when, when my wife and I go out with other people, we're aware that time is really valuable. Our time is limited, the people that we're getting together with, their time is limited, and we're aware that God is doing something and we want to line up with what he's doing. So for a number of years now, when we're getting ready, or even when we're out driving out to meet people, we'll ask each other, what three questions do you want to ask in the next so many hours. What three things do you want to know? Three is sort of a number that I can keep in my head. I don't have to write notes to myself. What three things do we want to ask that will actually help the conversation maybe move along the lines of what God is doing? 
or what three things do we want to talk about? What three things do we want to bring up? What th three things do we want to share or communicate? And there's times where we can't get three, but, but at least what are we doing? We've got one or two, and we've set ourselves down the course of if God were to open a door, an opportunity, we want to be ready for that. And so we want to get our mind moving in the same direction that God's moving in. Now, I can imagine somebody saying, you know what, that makes me a little uncomfortable. I'm not sure I want to go out with you and Sally. <laughs> be a little manipulative, run roughshod over top of me, manage me. If we insisted on driving some kind of agenda, I would say, you're wise, don't, don't go out with us. But we're not doing that. We're making room. If other people have other things they want to talk about, great. We're, ha we're happy to talk about other things. We don't have to talk about what we think. But we want to make sure that if there isn't anything, we want to be intentional in this relationship. You realize here, you have to push against the culture a little bit. Because there's something in our culture that says that if something is not spontaneous, then it's not quite authentic. It's not genuine if you thought about it in advance. It's got to happen in that moment in order for it to be real. Well, you read the book of Proverbs and you realize the book of Proverbs disagrees. The book of Proverbs introduces you to two people. It introduces you to the wise person and it introduces you to the fool. And both of these people have relationships, and it starts to describe, here's what their relationships are like. Both of these people talk to people in those relationships, and you get a sense for how they'd go about doing that. And as you go through the book, one of those people speaks really quickly, fast, off the top of their head, whatever's in their mind comes right out of their mouth. They're spontaneous. And as you read proverb after proverb after proverb after proverb, you start to realize it's not the wise person. It's always the fool start to realize that this side of heaven, spontaneous conversations don't tend to seek the welfare of God's people because people are not trying to. They're not intentional. If you want to benefit God's people, if you want to be wise, you have to be thoughtful. You have to consider your words. You have to choose them carefully, which does not mean that you're dull and boring. Okay? You can still be witty and, and, and fun. You can tell jokes. But because you've thought about it, you recognize those jokes and that witty, witticism has to have an intention, which is that it would benefit the other person. You're trying to get on board with what God is doing in order to seek the welfare of God's people. It means you have to do the hard work of thinking and planning in advance, even if that means in the car. Or I think about a couple that Sally and I got together with last week. They told us, about 70% of our friends are not Christians. And we feel like God is urging us, prodding us, to be more intentional in how we interact with them. We want to bring him and we want to bring his perspective into those relationships. We're not entirely sure what that looks like. Now, what are they saying? They're saying that a strong church is one that does not only care for herself, that seeking the welfare of God's people involves seeking the welfare of those who might yet become God's people. And so they're wanting to open up avenues where that might actually be possible. Great couple hours just thinking together, talking together, brainstorming. What would it mean to bring God and his perspective into their friends' lives? What's the label that Proverbs would use for that conversation? Say that we were being wise, intentionally thinking through in advance what to do relationally to see the church be strong, to reach out to people who need to know our God. So first, if you want to seek the welfare of God's people, 
Look for opportunities. Look for those opportunities to bring God and his perspective into other people's lives. Secondly, if you want to seek the welfare of God's people, be prepared for those opportunities when God gives them to you. And then third, don't simply see them, be prepared. Take them. Grab hold of them. Be bold when you see the opportunity. The king asked Nehemiah, verse 2, why are you sad? And Nehemiah tells you, then I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. I think, why, why is that? And some commentators will speculate that it's not okay to bring your personal problems into the king's presence. You always have to put on a happy face. Others point out there's a, actually a deeper reason here why Nehemiah was very much afraid. Nehemiah knows what he wants. He wants to rebuild Jerusalem. But this is the king, Artaxerxes, that he's talking to, who recently put a stop to that rebuilding. This is the king who let other people break down those walls that had been started being rebuilt, and he allowed the gates to be burned with fire. So by asking the king for permission to rebuild the city, Nehemiah is essentially publicly rebuking him. He's saying, in essence, king, you made a mistake. Jerusalem is in trouble. It's not good for them in Jerusalem. It's not good for your empire that they're in trouble, and it's all your fault. Your foreign policy stinks, and you need to reverse it. He's about to call the king out publicly. Nehemiah understands that's what he's about to do. He's very much afraid, with good reason. And yet he goes there anyway. His concern for God's people overrode his concern for his own life. That's bold. Took that opportunity with both hands. And he didn't stop there. He asked for more. He wants the king to pick up the tab for everything. So he's going to, he wants time away from his official duties in the capital city. What does that mean? The king has to reorganize his staff, has to find somebody else to replace Nehemiah. Nehemiah wants building materials, wants the king to pay for these. Not only for the wall and fortress gates, however, but verse 8, he also wants timber for the house that I shall occupy. Now that's code there, the house that I shall occupy. That's code for the official residence of the one whom the king will send to oversee the affairs of Jerusalem. He's asking for timber for the governor's house. He's asking, king, I want you to appoint me governor. And the king understands that's how big the ask is. Nehemiah will spend 12 years in Jerusalem as the governor. He'll be reappointed, actually. So he's asking the king to reverse himself, to do it publicly. He's asking the king to fund all of this, and he's asking the king to put himself, put him in charge of the people of God. And he's been thinking about this and turning it over in his mind for months. He knows the size of what he's asking. He knows the risk that he's taking. You think, why on earth would you do that? Why would you put yourself in someone else's gun sights? Why, what, does it, what does he know that lets him live this way? What does he know that compels him to live this way, to have no other way to live? Two things. Number one, he knows that God is involved in the world. And you just think, man, that's weak, Bill. Uh, that, that's Christianity 101, right? I mean, everybody, that, that's how you start. You, every Christian believes God is involved in the world, right? The king granted me, verse 8, what I asked for. The good hand of my God was upon me. We already know that. 
Yeah, a lot of Christians believe that. But not everybody lives believing that. Not everybody lives as though God was involved in his world. They live, actually, a lot of people, with two different theologies. You can call one a formal theology and one a functional theology. The formal theology is the one that, that's full of propositions and principles, and it's the one that you say you believe. It's the one that you've studied. It's the thoughts. It's the ideas. It's how all those things go together. It's the one that you acknowledge is true. This is who God is. This is what he does in the world. But that formal theology, when you hold them separate, that formal theology does not impact how a person lives. And so those beliefs don't affect the way that they actually feel in life. Those beliefs don't inform their decisions. Those beliefs don't change how they respond. Those beliefs don't guide what they do. They have a formal theology that's divorced from daily life. It's a theology that hasn't percolated into life so that it affects them and affects what they do. It's a theology, if you want to think about it this way, that's more interested in thoughts and ideas, that has a greater relationship with thoughts and ideas than it actually does with the one to whom those thoughts and ideas point. When that's the case, when you hold a formal theology that has no impact or very little impact on your day-to-day -day life, then your life is guided by a different theology, a functional theology. It's a different set of beliefs and propositions that does control how you feel and what you think and, and, and what you do. And it's very possible to have both of those theologies side by side in your mind. Here's what I believe, here's what I tell Christians, here's how I actually live. It's possible to hold on to both of those for a long time. You can hold on to both of those for years. Until what? Until God in his kindness allows something in your life that forces you to see that difference. Something happens, something pushes you so hard, something tempts you so strongly, something is there that you want so badly, and suddenly it becomes very clear that what you formally hold is not actually how you live. In that moment, you're not able to pretend, you can't hide it. Nehemiah has a crisis point that if he has those two, it's gonna come out. It's going to be very obvious. It's there before the king. What is it that comes out of his life? He believes that God is active and involved in running the world. Verse 8, the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now think about what that, that moment felt like for Nehemiah. He just risked his life. He just asked outrageous things and got everything that he asked for. This is the moment when, what, you gather again around you, a couple friends, and you go out, and you celebrate, and you brag. You say, man, you should have seen it. I was amazing. I said all the right things at all the right times. I had the king eating out of the palm of my hand. I am that good. That's what comes out if your functional theology says, I'm responsible for the good stuff that happens in my world. What comes out of Nehemiah? <coughs> king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah has prayed for months. He's planned for months. He's been looking for an opportunity. He is prepped and ready. He was bold. He took the opportunity, and he says none of that is the critical issue. The critical issue is that the good hand of God was upon me. It's the critical factor is that God acts in his world, 
and God acts for good when you seek the welfare of his people. And what you see in that moment is that for Nehemiah, his functional theology and his formal theology are exactly the same. He lives out what he believes. But he does more than just believe God is involved in the world. He looks and he sees it. Second thing, he sees God at work as he seeks the welfare of God's people. And each time that he asks for something, he sees the king respond in a way that will benefit God's people. And he says, that's the good hand of my God. And so the king asks him, verse 2, why are you sad? Nehemiah says, Jerusalem is a mess. And the king says, okay, what do you want? What is that? It's the king responding in a way that will benefit God's people. It's the good hand of God on Nehemiah. So Nehemiah says, I see the good hand of God. It's going before me. It's doing the kinds of things that I need to have God do. I'm going to take another bold step. King, I want to rebuild the city. Oh, okay. How long are you going to be gone? There's the good hand of God again, advancing the plans and the purposes of God in this interaction. So Nehemiah says, well, it's going to be this long. By the way, I'm going to need some supplies. I'm going to need some letters to these other people. And the king says, okay, here they are more than that. Verse 9, here's an armed escort to go along with that. The good hand of God is all over this story, if you know what you're looking at. Each time Nehemiah sees God's good hand, he's that much bolder in what he asks for. Why is that? Because if God is involved, then clearly this is what's going to happen. And what God is doing is he's taking away all the barriers, clearing the path for Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is simply saying, I want more so that I can be with doing where, what you're doing where you are. His boldness comes because God's gone in front of him. It's a little bit like if you're at work and you've been thinking. You have some ideas of, of, of things that ought to... Uh, help your department, but you're not sure how well everybody else is going to receive them. So you keep them to yourself for a little while. Then your boss calls a departmental meeting and starts laying out a future direction for the team, and you realize that's exactly in line with where I, want, I think we ought to go. Except the boss lays this out at a conceptual level and says, we need some help with implementation. And you're like, I, I got this. I, I have all the strategic next steps. I know exactly what we need to do, and suddenly you don't have any problem sharing those next steps, do you? You're not worried about what anybody else thinks. You're bold. Why? Boss said, here's where we're going. It's their responsibility to set direction. It's their responsibility to get everybody else on the same page. This is where we're going. You're simply walking along with them, doing what the boss is already doing. You can afford to be bold. So when the king keeps giving Nehemiah what he asks for, Nehemiah doesn't see this as his lucky day. He sees this as the hand of God. He says, this is what God is doing on the earth. I, I, I was praying for exactly the same thing that God's already up to. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to dive in and ask for more. Look around you. When you see people getting on board with God's agenda to make his people stronger, you know something. You know that God is at work. When you see God at work, you can act even more boldly because you're certain that what you're doing is not a waste of time. And that's what we want to be about here at Renewal Mainline. We want to be a church that's filled with people who seek the welfare of God's people. 
We want to be a church of people who are willing to risk everything that they have to see God's people stronger. And that's possible because those are exactly the kind of people that Jesus came to this earth to bring into being. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 tells us, Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. They might no longer be absorbed by themselves and interested only in their own issues. Instead, they might live for him who died and was raised for them. Jesus saw that the church was weak, vulnerable, self-absorbed, that the church needed someone to risk everything for their sake, to seek their welfare, and Jesus did. He risked everything, and he was very much afraid at times. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, night that he's arrested, and he's praying there, and, and sweat is pouring off of him like it's blood. He's praying, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to go down this road. I don't want to face the separation that's going to be for, between you and me. This is going to be more pain and more agony than I can begin to imagine. I don't want that. Very much afraid. But Father, your will be done, not mine. He went anyway. And he died. In that moment, the good hand of God was not upon him. It was upon you. You benefited in that moment from the good hand of God. Jesus risked everything, cost him his life to seek your welfare. Why would he do that? Because he could see what the Father was doing. He understood that God would transform you through his death and his resurrection. That you would now have the same heart and the same passion that he does. And so Jesus was all in. Why? So that you could be all in. He saw God doing that, and then God's good hand was on him, raised him from the dead, brought us all together, that we might be the people of God who seek the welfare of the people of God. We're going to move toward communion now, invite the worship team, praise team back. Let me invite you, take a moment to talk with him. If you're